Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm Chad Kim. With me this week as usual will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. My apologies for the long hiatus. I spent the last month preparing for comprehensive exams and finishing papers. Trevor Adams recently got admitted to a master's program in philosophy, and Tom Velasco has been working hard to finish up his semester as well. This podcast was recorded almost a month ago now, and I forgot that I hadn't uploaded it. So while it was not recently recorded, it is recently uploaded. We we hope to be back up within the next couple of weeks with a new podcast on Eusebius of Caesarea, and to him we now turn. In many ways, Eusebius of Caesarea is the father of church history. Most of what we know about the lives of the apostles after Acts comes from him. More than that, Christian historians from Erosius to John Fox's books of martyrs in the Reformation use Eusebius as a kind of roadmap. Some of you may be wondering why in a podcast on theology we are reading a historian. We will try to focus on the theological writings of the church more than specifically historical works, but Christian theology always has a vested interest in the historical. We discuss this in some detail in this podcast on Eusebius. As to the historical background of Eusebius himself, he was bishop of Caesarea and was an integral part of the Trinitarian debates of the 4th century. He is the biographer of Constantine and how we know many of the details of Constantine's life. He lived through the end of the persecutions of the Roman Empire and saw in Constantine a kind of savior of Christianity from the perils of those persecutions. We will be looking at his work for the next several podcasts, as his Ecclesiastical History is a long work in eight books that plays an important part in many debates of the Church, including the nature of Scripture. We thank you for listening. We hope to have another podcast up in about two weeks. We're sorry for the delay, but I did not want to get the, I did want to get this out there in the meantime. I will try to be more diligent in keeping up with the Facebook page to let you know when the next podcast will be uploaded. Until then, enjoy this podcast on Eusebius of Caesarea and the first book of his Ecclesiastical History. Do historians like use this guy? Like is he that Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. No, he's the guy. He's like the only guy. No, there are other guys, but he is the like when you think of like when you study old periods and you have kind of historians who are the principal historians of that era, he's the principal historian of this era by far. So the the only criticisms then are probably just his being a Christian or something, right? So there, um, I guess we're we're kind of launching into it. One of the first, I mean, if we want to get right into the criticisms, one of the main criticisms is the passage about. Um, whether or not the uh, the guy from Edessa who gets a letter from Thomas, like all of that took place too late um, to really be uh, uh, Abgar. Um, so Thomas, one of the 12, was inspired, sent Thaddeus, one of the 70, to Edessa. Um, and this there's this whole tradition that Eusebius cites um, about the power of Jesus' resurrection um, to this guy, Abgar, uh, who becomes a Christian. And basically, no modern historians think of this as, um, think of this as, as, as sort of factual or historical. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's pretty late and hard well, to test. I should clarify what I meant. Eusebius is, regarded as the historian for his time like when he's writing about his times i think the previous stuff is much more suspect in terms of what people respect or trust right i mean when he's going back into the early church i mean into the 
sources, I mean, into early church history. That is pretty much anything that predates him. I don't, I mean, people use him as one of the primary sources, but that's because we don't have any other sources. And we say, well, he has access to some of those and we don't. But I'm talking about the fact that when it comes to the life of Constantine and his contemporaries, people go, oh, Eusebius is the man, he's the, and Socrates and Sazaman, those are two guys I've read too, but I, uh, I remember when we studied Constantine in school, Socrates and Sazaman took a second, second place to Eusebius. He was, at least my professor, he treated Eusebius when it came to Constantine as almost, almost canon. Like, you really, like, this really guy, what this is what happened, Eusebius told us. Yeah, and all I was pointing out uh, was just sort of one thing where a lot of, um, like I said, modern or contemporary historians sort of take issue with, you know, one of Eusebius's claims. It's not the most fundamental claim. It's one part of book one. Um, in other ways, um, we should treat Eusebius um, as sort of, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know, unique in history, um, or at least um, closer to our modern principles of of sort of discrimination between texts. So this is chapter nine. He's talking about Pilate, um, and there. So we've mentioned these probably offhand, but it, we haven't read any of the apocryphal acts. So other than the Acts of the Apostles, which we believe to have been written by Luke, um, there are other Acts. We mentioned Acts of Paul and Thecla when we uh, discussed Thecla with Methodius, but there are other Acts. There's the Acts of Thomas, um, the Acts of James. Uh, there are a bunch of different other Acts. Um, so uh, Eusebius mentions the Acts of Pilate, and he says this clearly proves that the recently published Acts of Pilate are forgeries since they claim that the crime of the Savior's death occurred in the fourth consulship of Tiberius, which was the seventh year of his reign, a time when Pilate was not yet in charge of Judea. So I, I think that what the reason I bring this up um, just is to demonstrate that it wasn't that Eusebius just indiscriminately took anything that was written about Pilate or about Jesus as 100% fact. Like he's going, wait a minute, let's look at the timelines. Let's look who was in charge. Oh, okay, this is not a historical fact. Um, and so I, I, I think, you know, I think that's sort of impressive on the part of Eusebius. And part of what he's doing is just collecting all of these sources from the period, including and maybe most especially is Josephus, who, if you haven't read Josephus, I mean, Josephus is who everybody goes to to provide context for the life of Jesus um, and the Judaism of the period. I mean, if it's not in Josephus, it's questionable. Yeah, um, actually, yeah, fair enough. I, I'm sorry, I didn't quite pick up on that in my first comment, but uh, it's actually that's actually a beef I have with a lot of contemporary historians. Is contemporary historians have a tendency to doubt the um, tenacity, I think, for lack of a better word, of early historians. They just assume that early historians were maybe a little too gullible are a little too quick to believe sources that they came across, which I don't want to say that that's not there. I mean, maybe it is a bit. But when you think back to the great Greek historians, Roman historians, you see people who are interacting with works and who are being critical. We may disagree with their critical process. We may say, oh, they're, they're not being critical enough, or, or we may discount their assumptions. Um, but they are looking at different things and providing arguments for why we should favor one 
uh, historical uh, work as opposed to another, one historical source as opposed to another. So, and and they even mention their process. Eusebius is not the first guy who did this. I mean, modern historians are just in this long train of of a tradition of study where historians are committed to trying to eliminate bad sources. Right. Um, I've, you know, so in my program, we did a whole uh, class on historical methodology um, and some of the uh, more contemporary sort of philosophers of history or theorists of history have called the ancients mere copy and pasters um, as if what uh, Eusebius does is just find a bunch of text, copy it and paste it and say, see, there you go. That's history. Um, (laughs) Which I I always got frustrated by because even Herodotus, the, you know, the father of history. So um, we've mentioned Herodotus probably a few times in this podcast, but he's the, 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 the father of Western history, as far as we know. And Eusebius is kind of, you know, a little bit in that line, although he's sort of the father of church history. So this, this work that we're looking at is called, um, you know, the, the ecclesiastical history or the history of the church. Um, but even Herodotus discriminates, even Herodotus will say, you know, I will follow this and not that, you know, um, he mentions various accounts of the, uh, of Troy, of the uh, Battle of Troy. And, you know, he tries to be a little bit discriminating. Now, you know, modern historians are more discriminating, as Tom said, uh, or follow different paths um, by which, or or, excuse me, different criteria for which they judge. Um, But nevertheless, they, you know, Eusebius is not a mere copy and paster. Um, He is doing, you know, sort of active work, looking through the sources, trying to filter them um, for what is reliable. Mm-hmm. You know, by the way, just kind of thinking about Herodotus and Thucydides, Eusebius, all, all you know, these great historians of antiquity. Um, it, it's odd. I almost wonder, and I don't just mean this to be like an ad hominem attack on these people who are criticizing ancient historians, but I almost have to wonder if they've ever read any of these ancient historians, because the truth is, is the the critical the critical nature of their writing is actually more evident in antiquity than it is today. And not, and, and only because of this, because modern historians, and you could argue that this might actually be a little, I don't know, a little bit of a deception. They try to write object uh, with a, an air of objectivity. So they try to write in the third person. They try to eliminate their own voice. They try not to intrude upon the text. They speak of things as fact. Whereas when you read Herodotus, Thucydides, Eusebius, they allow their voice to enter. They say things like, uh, I read this and I read that and this other guy's wrong. You know, I mean, and so you get, I feel like they're being a lot more transparent. They're saying, they're letting you know what they've read and what they're criticizing. And you can really have a sense of, of what, you know, of kind of the arguments behind what they're saying. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. So a few of the historians that I just have in mind, um, there's this guy uh, known as Lord Acton, uh, John Dahlberg Acton, uh, who is one of these modern historians that I've read and who basically like in one of his works where he talks about sort of the method of history, he, he says exactly what Tom said. Um, the historians should not at all be present um, in the writing of history. Like you're doing it wrong if the person reading you has an idea that there's someone who is conveying this information to them. Um, and so you sort of try to eliminate the face of the historian in the writing where, and, you know, in a lot of more 
sort of postmodern or like even that. So Lord Acton's 19th century. Um, so a hundred years from now, we're a little more aware of what Tom's saying. And I think we're going back to more like maybe a little bit more like the ancients where we're, we're saying, look, this is what we're trying to prove. Here's how we're going through it. And the historian is allowed to be uh, a little bit more of the part of the process and can disclose um, some of their, you know, their methods and, 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 you know, and not have to sort of pretend like they aren't there. Like this is absolute objective fact viewed from nowhere. Um, and, and so the, the guy, um, I mean, just, um, for what it's worth, uh, is Collingwood, uh, RG Collingwood, the idea of history. He's the one who sort of, um, belittles, um, ancient historians as being copy and pasters. Um, I find some of his other stuff helpful, but his, uh, <laughs> the way that he just passes off, um, ancient historians is a little bit too quick. Well, and see the whole reason I asked whether Eusebius was like considered legit or not is just my 10 minute Google search read session was just, yeah, I mean, everyone was just, like, it felt like everyone was crapping on Eusebius, but, like, that I was reading. But it was, I don't I mean, of course, there were some sources that were nice to him, but a lot of people were just like, oh, this is obviously just the most biased thing in the world. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, he's a Christian, but. Oh, he's very biased, and he's very open about that. I mean, he doesn't try to pretend like he lacks, he doesn't try to pretend at all. I find that refreshing because I I think I hate that modern journalism and modern history I I feel like history and journalism share a lot in common and one of the big things that they both share is that they're trying to give off the air of disinterest that is they're trying to give off the air of a lack of bias that they are being objective and uh, Chad was right he said that kind of postmodern takes are a little more aware of the reality behind this but the truth is, is that every historian essentially is presenting an argument. And presumably, if they're presenting an argument, they have a conclusion, <clears throat> which means that they are trying to convince somebody of something, and which means they have an opinion. And so I just find it a little disingenuous to try to tell a group of people, look, I don't have an opinion. I'm just reporting the facts. But in the meantime, you're very clearly espousing a certain stance. What I love about Eusebius is he's like, hey, everybody, we all know what I believe. We all know what I think. Here it is, and here are my reasons for thinking it. I like that. I think, like, I was thinking about it, and I was like, this, especially, you know, he, I don't know if Eusebius would have been um, alive in the time in which the church is being persecuted, but. um, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. Well, then. uh, Actually, under the Diocletian persecution, I believe. Well, then to me, it's, I mean, to me, it's even more so that I think it would be as ridiculous as like not listening to the diary of Anne Frank, because you would think, oh, well, she's just biased. (laughs) We should hear what the Germans have to say. Mm -hmm. It's like, what, what did the Nazi soldiers really do? It's like, I, to me, it's like, okay, this is just, I mean, at some point, yeah, I you're I mean sure you don't need to like I understood what they were saying somewhere on the internet. It was just this, you know, let's not believe the miracles. Sure, if you're an atheist that's fine, but I was just a bit like why I mean we 
we do not even discredit the Bible this much. Like we take, for example, the Acts of the Apostles as like a decent view of, um, well, or a decent glimpse into history. So, mm, I don't know. I feel like I feel like they hold a pretty con- the critics will hold a similar criti- standard yeah. of criticism over Acts or the Gospel accounts or Eusebius and like the Acts. Or, or like, I think I think they'd actually respect Eusebius more than than those. I think, I think yeah, I think in general. Um, for at least for his time period, not necessarily for events of the distant past, but for at least events of his time period. I will say it's not as if I just take just for our listeners, and I, I'm sure this is true of Chad and uh, yeah. and Trevor as well. We don't just take Eusebius at face value and assume that he's always right either. I mean, I, I'm sure there are lots of places that he's wrong. Uh, I just I, I I look at history that is the work of the historian, like I do philosophy. It's a conversation. Um, he has contributed some really important parts to the conversation. And I like the way he goes about doing history. And I think it's super unfair if somebody just kind of comes in and says, oh, Eusebius was biased and he had these bad sources and blah, 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 blah. You know, especially if those people didn't even read Eusebius, which I feel like a lot of them haven't. But Yeah, well, let's talk about what he's trying to do. So at some point, this will overlap with the concerns of, of the historian and the concerns of the theologian. But in the book one, chapter one, he lays out the plan of the work. And he says, having gathered, therefore, from the matters mentioned here, uh, whatever we consider important for the present work, pluck the flowers from the meadow, the appropriate passages from the ancient uh, writers, where we shall endeavor to embody the whole in a historical narrative, content if we preserve the memory of the successions of the apostles of our Savior. Um, if not indeed of all, yet of the most renowned of them in the churches which are the most noted, and which even at the present time are held in honor. So I, so anyway, so I bring that up. Yeah, he's trying to say um, this is what, what, I, what may be even unique to Eusebius uh, versus um, maybe someone like uh, Herodotus or Thucydides. Uh, Eusebius thinks that he's giving the plan of the whole historical narrative centered, I mean, this is certainly unique to those guys centered in Christ, but, but Eusebius has this belief that there is a divine uh, dispensation, a divine uh, plan for everything that is going on uh, in the world. And he sees it now uniquely for Eusebius. He says it, it, it's centered in the Christ event. Um, so he's going to have to go back and show how something relatively contemporary to Eusebius 300 years ago was also ancient. So he's going to go back and use the Old Testament to show yeah. how Christ was preexistent. But for Eusebius, the whole of human history um, is is sort of uh, the focal point is on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and he's also going to lead it up to the present, which um, some people think that this book was composed in several different parts. Um, so we'll get to the end. But he will even see in the coming of um, uh, of Constantine almost uh, like sort almost the second coming of Christ in a way. Um, but this sort of not even second coming of Christ, but like in some ways, like everything. The most important event was Christ, but because Constantine allowed Christians. Uh, to be lead, to legally worship um, freely, there's a there's clearly divine uh, action at work, and I'm, and it's not that the ancients, as I understand them, didn't believe that the gods were at work, but it was never clear to what end the gods were at work, to what end fate was working, um, and how the various gods and fate work together. But for Eusebius, there is a divine plan, 
and he's going to show it to you with some discrimination uh, of his sources. Uh, but he, I mean, this is pretty critical to his project um, is this God is at work in the course of the whole of human history um, that can in some way be summed up or centered on uh, the, the coming of, of Christ. Yeah, and it should be noted for our listeners, if you're wondering why are these guys reading a historian when it's a history of theology, the truth is Eusebius contributed greatly to the history of theology. And I think probably in a lot of ways, but largely, at least from my perspective, and Chad, what you just said kind of made me think of it, by the fact that he does tend to bookend church history between the coming of Christ, the Messiah, and the seeming messianic coming of Constantine. I I don't want to say that Eusebius looked at Constantine as literally the second coming of Christ, nor do I want to say that Eusebius didn't believe in a return of Christ, which he most certainly did. But make no mistake about it, he looked at the coming of Constantine as a kind of fulfillment in history, as this major climactic moment in human history that brings salvation to the people of the church and which ushers in a a new world. Uh, To him, it is a new world because up until this point, the church has been persecuted. The church, and of course, at the turn of the century, at the end of the 200s, at the end of the third century, going into the fourth century, um, the church had just undergone her worst persecution at the hands first of the emperor Diocletian and then at the hands of the emperor Galerius. Now with Constantine converting in the year 312, we have, an, we have a defender. We have a person who will protect us. And then with the issuing of the Edict of Milan, which guarantees religious freedom to all people in the empire, like this, this hails peace and prosperity. So you might think of Eusebius as an eschatologicalist. That is, uh, he uh-huh. is very concerned with this notion of a culmination of things, the end of things coming together with this new Roman state, with a Christian Roman emperor, and a church that is now imperial in nature. Yeah, and this is, and so this is also the problem where, like, if you're a pure historian, you struggle with Eusebius because he is also a theologian, and this is all. This is where Christians are are are, are you know still struggle theologically, um, whether it's the works of N. T. Wright or John Dominic Crossan. Um, for the Christian, history is more important maybe than any other. Um, in any other religious faith, in so far as we believe that Christ came on, or that God came to Earth and involved Him, uh, God's self in human history. Um, so, if God has involved Himself in human history, um, the fact of the matter, whether or not it was historically accurate, that's the claim that Christians make. Historically, God became man, came to Earth. Historically, there was a resurrection. So. If there is a science of history, the Christians have to care um, about whether or not the events that they are claiming are are historically verifiable. Um, but it also seems like a theological claim uh, to to a more modern scientific mon- mindset that would say that those are impossible. So as Trevor mentioned, miracles. We've got to leave out the miracles. Well, the whole point of this history is the miracle of the resurrection, is, is having its grounding in the miracle of the resurrection. So theologians are sort of, uh, especially people who call themselves historical theologians, which is what I'm supposed to be doing, are sort of torn um, in the sort of science of history that would preclude uh, belief in miracles uh, because they're not repeatable, they're not 
you know, uh, they're not, they break the laws of science. Um, and then the theologian, uh, who believes, uh, you know, who as a, as a fact of their belief, believes that God could become man and resurrect. Um, and so there yeah. is, you know, there is this inherent belief in the uh, supernatural. Yeah, this, this is actually a super interesting tension, I think, because in every other academic discipline, um, mostly, I, I, should, I should actually probably limit myself to the sciences primarily. In the sciences, of course, we have what we call methodological naturalism. So by the method, you assume uh, something about the world, about what's in the world, and that it's just all there is is something natural. And you don't do this because that's even the case. I mean, you, you could be a theist and be a scientist for sure, but your methodology is going to be naturalistic. But it's weird how, like, to be respectable, historians have, like, I think it's because maybe we live in a culture where science is super high respected. Historians are shoved into this box, too, a little bit, at least contemporary historians. And they assume that our methodology needs to be naturalistic and it it is weird because definitely for the christian if you know christ did not resurrect we would not have a religion yeah. right now we, there's no point in what there's we're no doing. christianity yeah. yeah there's no christianity like so it's a historical fact but it's also a fact about god which makes it something about theology so it is it's a theological and historical fact uh combo and yeah, I when I read people like N.T. Wright, I'm like, this dude's wicked smart, should be well-respected in his field, but I see people just kind of poo-poo his opinion as well because, oh, look what he's doing, you know, that's just more theology, it's more popular-level theology or something. It's like, no, he's just a good historian who has a set of beliefs about the world, and they're going to have to inform it, like, not in the same way in which you do with science which just kind of, to me, just shows history is more like, you know, it's, it's abductive reasoning. It's not inductive. You're not coming up with a hypothesis and testing it. Instead, you're trying to say what, what is the best explanation given the facts. And then your view of what exists in the world, like if you think there's spirits, then that's just going to affect your view of history. It's just that, I don't know. It seems to me clear, but it's strange. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that fact that history history doesn't need to ascribe to methodological naturalism. I mean, if no. I mean, I obviously I'm not a naturalist. I, I believe in a supernatural world. Uh, I, I believe in God and angels and demons and those things. But if I engage in a discussion with a science, a scientist, or a person who's of who has interest in science, and we start discussing scientific theories. We do discuss them in a naturalistic setting. I'm fine with that. Um, but, it, you know, and, and in history, I'm okay with it too. But you're right. There's no need for the historian to have to ascribe to that. And I would add too, just kind of piggybacking off of something Chad said, <clears throat> which does filter into what Trevor said, what you said just a moment ago. Um, I would just add one more thing. You guys talk about the fact that the resurrection of Christ is a definite point in history. So therefore for Christians, history is more important than perhaps in other religions. Uh, we're, I mean, I, I, we're not just attacking other religions, incidentally, in saying that. I mean, um, some religions actually 
well, I'll, I'll just say it this way. Christianity very distinctly has a linear view of history. Mm. There was a beginning, and it's important that we know about this beginning. There will be an end, mm -hmm. and it's important that we understand that end. Whereas other religions, especially Eastern uh, religions such as Hinduism or Buddhism, they ascribe to a circular view of history, one in which there is no beginning, there is no end, and there's a lot of repetition, so to speak, a lot of uh, kind of redoing of events. Um, for the Christian, history is so intertwined with our theology because the resurrection had to happen literally at a definite point in time. And there has to be a culmination of time. That's eschatology, the study of end things. That's important to us. That's a big part of our theology. So I would venture to say that almost every Christian who is a serious theologian is somewhat of a historian. And also transversely, if you're a historian, a Christian historian, you are, are also somewhat of a theologian. I was thinking about that with N.T. Wright, because when you read N.T. Wright, you have to ask, is he a historian or a theologian? Because it's not, I think he would say he's a historian, but it's not always so clear. He makes mm -hmm. significant theological statements, which by the way, again, this also just shows our cultural bias. We live in a world where specialization is the norm. Everybody wants to know, are you a historian or a theologian? Throughout most of world history, up until, you know, mid 19th century, you were like a learned man was not either or he was all and he was both and actually all and he had it all the theologian didn't go well i better not go into history because i'm not a historian he said i want knowledge and that is where i need to find it so consequently i mean it's like isaac newton he wouldn't have called himself a scientist or a physicist he was a philosopher he was a bible commentator he was a theologian he was a he was all of those things mm -hmm. because to them learning had no bounds yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And and as I've stated, I mean, this is something in, in my program that we sort of uh, go back and forth about is, are we more historians? Are we more theologians? And we have this problem where we feel like we're divided into two camps, um, where we want to be respectable to the historians. Uh, so we sort of have this methodological naturalism, as Trevor described it. And then as theologians, we want to say something um, that's sometimes called like constructive theology or modern theology, where like we want to engage with the ideas and see, and, and sort of understand how it affects the life of faith. Um, and so have sort of a voice in the church rather than just a voice in the historical academy. And I think that this is, you know, I didn't mean to be, I also wanted to say, I didn't mean to be um, disrespectful of other religions. Uh, the fact that Christians are so centered on this historical claim of the resurrection might also be our downfall. Um, in so far as if we were wrong, um, it might be very provable um, historically, uh, and and so and it ends up causing these these battles. Um, you know, we won't get to uh, Boltmann and some of the Germans who want to just totally distance themselves uh, from these naturalist claims um, because they're you know, uh, because methodological naturalists, because historians, you know, will have a hard time uh, with verifying miracles. So, okay, so we can't verify miracles. So let's distance ourselves from the miraculous. Uh, let's just talk about a spiritual resurrection or something to that effect. So a lot of Christian theologians, in order to uh, be respectable, have tried to distance themselves from the miraculous. And, and I'm, I'm a, you know, there are times when I could be accused of this too, I'm sure. Um, but, but I want to be rigorous 
um, but also recognize my faith commitments. Um, and so there's always this tension between, you know, sort of academic critical rigor um, and uh, a recognition that I operate under certain, uh, you know, faith principles that I think have that can be verified in some ways, uh, but I know that are not going to be accepted uh, by all people with whom I speak. And so that's kind of, you know, that's just one challenge uh, that that I've had um, trying to come to terms with my, you know, what my uh, academic work is going to be. And I mean, just for what it's worth, I consider myself more of a theologian uh, than a historian, but I've enjoyed learning about what it, you know, what are sort of the historical principles and methods at work. Uh, but I would lean more on the, the theology side. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I would, I don't know what I'd be. I have, <laughs> I have a degree in history and a degree in philosophy and I think I'm more interested in theology than either, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I would have a break that kind of a breakdown in my mind. Well, um, just, so what does, uh, <laughs> what does, uh, uh, Eusebius actually say? Um, the things that I found, some of which were, you know, just to point out, um, it is from Eusebius that we have the traditions of, uh, Peter and Paul being killed by Nero. It's from Eusebius, uh, that we have a uh, reason to believe that, you know, James, well, not only Eusebius scripture too, but like James is the brother of Jesus. So this becomes a contentious issue uh, when we'll uh, read Jerome's on the perpetual virginity of Mary. How can um, Mary be a virgin if Jesus had a brother? Uh, Eusebius doesn't seem to be, seem to uh, read that as a problem uh, as, as uh, you know, he clearly states that James is Jesus' brother or the tradition that Mark, the gospel of Mark, is uh, Peter's gospel um, and the connection there. Uh, he also makes an interesting statement uh, about the scripture, uh, which really um, books three and four will have more to do with the original, uh, with some of the first lists um, of the, of the uh, New Testament. Uh, but, uh, but he mentions the epistles Jude and James and considers them, you know, he says, yeah, there's some debate about them. Uh, but they're read in church and basically says, yeah, I think they're scripture. Um, so he would come down on the side of keeping those two included in the canon. Um, any other, I mean, you know, any comments on those? Oh, good. I was actually going to bring up a, another thing to talk about, but good. what's your comment on that first? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, that's how it's always been couched to me is that those ideas we find them originating in Eusebius, of course, with the disclaimer that we've kind of already made that he didn't come up with these out of thin air. He got them elsewhere. I did. Uh, I do recall reading, maybe not explicitly, I'm just kind of vaguely re- recalling, but Peter and Paul, at least Ignatius mentions that Peter and Paul die in Rome. I don't know that he goes into detail about how they died, but when we read Ignatius, I recall that. And I do recall quotes from James in books that we've read so far, although I don't recall if uh, coming across a quote from the book of Jude, but yeah, I, I don't ever recall a reference to the brothers of the Lord to James and Jude being brothers of Jesus. Uh, Jude, uh, not Jude, just James. Sorry. Oh, just James is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't recall that happening prior to Eusebius. Was there any reference that you guys recall to, to that? I do know the new Testament speaks of the brothers of the Lord. Um, it makes reference to them, and it gives their names. So we do know that James is that there's a brother of Jesus named 
James, but the identification of him with James the Just, the writer of the the first. Um, Eusebius seems to think that Paul is referring to James the Just. Uh, I forget which epistle, but it's when he says, and the last person I saw was James, the brother of the Lord. And Eusebius seems to think that this is all the same person, but um, I can't think of any other references. Oh, yeah, Galatians 1, 19. I saw no other apostles, only James, the brother of the Lord, or the Lord's brother. So there's a reference to James, who is a brother of the Lord, who was an apostle, according to Paul. Yeah. So Paul has that reference. And yep. he thinks, uh, yeah, Eusebius says, yep, and this is one of the 70 that they, that is referenced, that mm-hmm. it's one of the 70 apostles. So, And um, just while we're talking about these, um, the, the we've mentioned this a, a few times, but this whole idea of apostolic succession or thinkers that follow uh, from the apostles, the four most important churches of the ancient world are Rome, Jerusalem, Antioch, uh, and and Alexandria. Um, And we'll add uh, Constantinople shortly. Um, But these are sort of the early centers of Christianity. And so um, it's important to put uh, Peter in Rome, James in Jerusalem, uh, Ignatius in Antioch, and and, and actually Mark is considered uh, the, um, the, the first sort of um, C apostolic C of um, of Alexandria, but these early uh, focal points and centers of Christianity, Eusebius is drawing out the history, showing us where they come from. And I mentioned Thomas earlier. Um, if you're uh, well, we're recording this after the second uh, Sunday in Easter, which is usually the Doubting Thomas Sunday. Um, and and whenever I've preached on that on this Sunday, I always mention that uh, Thomas is said to have gone to India and founded the the Martoma churches there. So we've mentioned Thomas, but all the um, apostles are sent out to various places, and that's sort of um, the extent of his sending. And James to Spain, and where all of these go. <laughs> And where they establish these churches uh, are really important, and Eusebius will mention uh, many of these. But like I said, most especially um, the the big four. Yeah, which is a, it's important. This is you know a lot of Protestants I don't think will pick up on the importance of these things. But to a Roman Catholic and to an Eastern Orthodox uh, individual, they place heavy the- I mean heavy theological importance mm-hmm. in the fact that they're crowning sea kind of like the principal church so to speak that they associate with was founded by an apostle and has a a line of succession that is unbroken from the apostles because they do find the authority of their church tied up in that fact and <clears throat> this is where of course we have i mean we're westerners will be more familiar with it uh, with the church in rome of course where um, papal authority, the authority of the Pope, is is bound in in Catholic doctrine in the idea that the Pope comes at the end of a long succession of bishops appointed by Peter, right? And so, what Chad just described, tracing out all of these apostles as being in these locations, is of such immense importance in kind of locking down the authority of these churches. Eastern Orthodox, of course, reject the notion that the Pope has a um well is has a 
privileged primacy over the other churches. Um, they do see him as having a primacy and as being a first amongst equals. But nonetheless, they see all of the apostolic churches as having that foundation. By the way, Chad, I've seen different lists. At one time, was Ephesus included amongst these churches as kind of an apostolic sea of importance? I could have swore. I didn't read that recently. That's just something I kind of recollect. I don't know if you ever heard that or seen that in come across that? Um, the ones that I named are the ones that I'm familiar with as major ones. And, and I did, and actually Thomas and James, Spain and India, those are not major ones. It was the other yeah. one. Yeah. Um, yeah. You just referenced them as a part of the apostolic tradition. and Right. Yeah. And one other point that I should make that's sort of interesting in terms of this connection between theology and history. So for Protestants, the most important historical fact is the resurrection of Jesus. And if we get that wrong, um, then, then, you know, as Paul has said, our faith is futile. Um, but for Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, part of the history, include the, the history of the church matters so much more because, as Tom said, you have to be able to demonstrate this succession. Um, so this investigation of who came after Peter, who came after uh, Mark, or, you know, these founders of the various churches, that really matters in uh, being able to define the succession historically um, as a sort of to verify the um, the import of the church. And so, again, you see, you know, uh, you see this connection between history and theology, uh, maybe even a little bit stronger in an odd way uh, for those churches. Um, because if, if you can demonstrate that there wasn't the succession, well, then, um, you know, you might wonder about the reliability of the, uh, uh, of the apostolic seat. Yes, and for someone reading this for the very first time, that being myself, I'm reading this. I've never, you know, I don't know anything like famous facts about this uh, text or anything like that, but I was reading it and I'm like, I'm finding a large like character, not, not really a character defense because it's not like someone's being slurred, but like a, a character buildup of the apostles in such a way. And I think it might tie to this fact that apostolic succession and these apostolic seas are important to him. And one of the weird ones was like in book two, he gives this really high praise of Peter, like more so than I think sometimes you would normally consider if you're like, I think especially coming from just, you know, an evangelical non-denom tradition, you read the new Testament and you feel like just Paul's the man and everyone loves Paul, but there's not really ever an emphasis on Peter except for like when he gets out of the boat. And then we, all of a sudden we talk about that passage and that's about it. And I, I saw like this, you know, big, you know, this big, like glorious, look how awesome Peter is in book two, but then book one, chapter 12, I thought this was strange. I kind of thought maybe he had a a motive behind this. I don't know what you guys think, but it's in uh, chapter 12 of book one. And it's like part two. He's talking about a man named Cephas, who is one of the 70 who bore the same name as the apostle Peter and was the one concerning whom Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Oh, so he's saying that it's a different Cephas. Yeah. He's saying it's a different, yeah. And I was like, 
part of me started to think, because I was trying to think back from their perspective, because I, I really think, you know, Eusebius would be more like a modern Roman Catholic or a Greek or an Orthodox person in the sense that this is a, a great concern to him too, apostolic succession. And I'm like, is he defending kind of Peter's character here by saying it's a different person? Yeah. He's, he's basically like, trying to say Peter wouldn't make that kind of mistake. Yeah, He's yeah. saying Peter wouldn't do that, which is so unfortunate that robs the text of, of its vitality. I mean, I, and, and it, what's more is what makes that text so wonderful in my mind is the fact that it is in fact the Peter, mm-hmm. because you need to know that Peter himself, that he was not perfect, that he made mistakes. Um, something that like I know for me is a comfort and assurance in my faith. And I think that that's one of the things that you do find happening as as Christians do try to take history, history and conform it to their theology, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're going to see. Like, Chad, you mentioned a moment ago how Eusebius makes no attempt to reconcile the fact that James is Jesus' brother with the fact that Mary's a perpetual virgin. I mean, I don't want to step on toes, but I would imagine that's because Eusebius didn't believe in the perpetual virginity, right? That he was okay with the thought of Mary having children after Jesus, Mm -hmm. Um, something that Protestants believe, you know, um, or not all Protestants, but a lot, most evangelicals. Um, And here, I think you have a situation where like a lot of people feel very comfortable and maybe even super comfortable thinking of Peter as still a sinner. But what you, and I'm sure that I think theologically Eusebius would probably acknowledge that Peter made mistakes, but I think here he's saying, I think he's saying this is too big of a mistake for Peter to make. And so we don't want his name marred. Yeah. I, I thought that was just an interesting passage. And it was one in which I thought this was definitely a, you know, theology built into his history here. Yep, and yep. I wonder what, you know, he doesn't give us a source for it, but I wonder what makes him think that this is a different Peter. Clement of, of Alexandria. Oh, really? Yeah. Clement says, oh, says yeah. that it's a different Peter. Yeah. 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 Cl- that's where, that's where he gets that. Um, so it, it was, you know, it was part of his desire to, like you say, I mean, make Peter look a little less contentious. Um, but it is, it's an odd thing to choose that one passage to make him less contentious because he's contentious more than just there. I mean, um, but. Um, well, but here's why. Because in all the other instances where we see Peter being a sinner in some sense, it's prior to the risen Lord. His, this, is a, this is a very clear mistake made after Christ resurrects after the Holy Spirit is given, after Pentecost. And so I don't know exactly where that would fit into Clement's theology, but I could see somebody saying, well, Peter was a sinner prior to the risen Lord. And if we recall, Clement flirts with perfectionism, right? Right. Clement has a theology which almost seems to imply that when a Christian is, is born of the Spirit or whatever terminology he uses, I don't recall, that that Christian is perfect, does not sin. I I don't want to commit him to that, but there's at least that, appearance in in his writing well and we'll also um see the question shift here in the fourth century of when someone should be baptized um because of this view of uh the perfectibility or at least the um if you sin after uh baptism you might be at risk um of not getting into heaven basically um and so there was a, a sense of you know you should 
be at least nearly perfect after you've been baptized, at least not having really bad habitual sin, if not near perfection. Yeah, we'll see that with Constantine, because Constantine will put off getting baptized uh, to the end of his life, which it's funny. I've heard, you know, you hear arguments that try to purport that Constantine uh, was not sincere in his Christian conversion and that he was doing it for political reasons, for political gain. And I've never heard a good argument for what the political gain would be. I've heard arguments. I find them incredibly unconvincing. It seems to me that it would make way more sense for him to resoundingly endorse one of the existent gods uh, or even, I mean, you know, like Jupiter or even the God that his own father served soul um, than to take up with a newfangled tradition that didn't maybe that maybe five percent of the population embraced uh it never made much sense i've always thought he was authentic but one of the arguments that i've heard historians use was that constantine put off getting baptized until the day of like towards the end of his life like like weeks before his death and that just shows one of the problems i think that arises from what we've been discussing these historians are ignorant of the theology, right? They, they, maybe that's harsh. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be like hard on them, but it seems like that there's an obvious theology that underlies why Constantine put off his conversion, and it was a fear of falling into gross sin, and thus, uh, in fact, when he was baptized, he also had stepped down as emperor so that he wouldn't have the conflict of interest of having to be a, a ruler, you know. Um, or I shouldn't say step down, but he relieved himself of his imperial duties. Let's say that. Yeah. Uh, there was another thing I wanted to bring up. Go for it. Just because if I don't get an answer about it, I just want to know more about it, basically. I, yeah, I my curiosity would kill me. Uh, it's chapter 13 from book one. What is this weird written text from Jesus that he wrote a letter to somebody? Like, this would have been, like, the only writing of Jesus if it's, you know, authentic. And is, like, I, I read this section a couple times, and I'm kind of like, does Eusebius think this happened? Because it seems like he think that this he thought that this actually happened. And where did he get this letter? And I was just... I was just so confused by the whole thing. I'm like, this is weird. This is the first time I've ever heard of something like this. But So that was part of what I was referencing when I said that no, uh, nobody takes this as historical fact. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, And is this partly why? Is it just because – is it pretty much, you know – held in our minds that Jesus never wrote anything down. Well, no, I think one, I think one, there are a lot of arguments you could use. None of them are airtight. Like I think one of the arguments would be if Jesus had written something, the, the success of apostles would have taken great care to preserve it. That's like yeah. one thing. And this is the first, not only the first time you see it, but as far as I can tell, the first reference to it ever, like, like, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there were other references, but you would have thought if it was taken seriously, earlier scholars would have mentioned it. I, I would think that's like one potential argument I think you could use. I would imagine, yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, so where did this thing come from? Is this the first well, time you see this? There's so much apocryphal literature that, yeah. that a lot of it, which, you know, I, I know we've referenced it a little bit, but especially for our listeners, there's a lot of stuff we're not reading that is very old from the first 300, 400 years of church history. 
And one thing that definitely proliferated in the first three or 400 years of church history is, is essentially forged, forged writings. Right. Um, often used, it would seem, by people who were trying to make a theological point and to theologically strong arm people. So it would, they found it to their advantage to say, hey, everybody, look, you have the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I have here the Gospel of Peter. And really, it was right. just, they would write a theological treatise that would support their theological views, and by just purporting it to be Peter's, would make everybody kind of go, oh, if it's Peter, well, we have to listen to it. And so that seemed to be a pretty big practice. Um, it, it, it certainly was a big part of the debate between the Gnostics and the Christians because the Gnostics would use such writings to support their own theology. They right. would say, oh, there's the Gospel of Judas, there's the Gospel of Philip, and, and all of these things. And these show us these other traditions that the church had lost. Um, but I think that's that's one thing that we're certain happened but then there's always the question of, of those writings, how many of them are forgeries? Are there any of them that might be legit? You know, and that's that's the question that I think scholars wrestle with. It was just strange to me, though, because I was like, what is the motivation for this? Like, I'm reading it, too, and I'm like, there's no great – I can't – I don't see, like, some great motive behind this. I mean, other than it's just, like, a proof of, you know, Christ mm-hmm. and his divinity or something. But I was like – well, even that reference that he makes there is not a quote from the letter itself. It's a quote from a work that included the letter in it. Oh. Like somebody else had uh, referenced it. Was it Thomas? That he's, he's quoting a supposed writing of Thomas that includes yeah. that letter. So even that is not a, a reference of the actual <clears throat> letter itself. Oh. Hmm. But yeah, it's, I mean, no, no, no one takes it as um, having actually <laughs> recorded the words of Jesus. Right, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I, I just disregard it um, in terms of the historicity. And it does also demonstrate that uh, Eusebius could read Syriac, which is kind of interesting. Oh, weird. Um, and it gives an import to the far eastern part of the church, which we have not discussed much. Thanks for listening. We hope to be back up within the next couple of weeks with books two and three from Eusebius of Caesarea's Ecclesiastical History.